chapter 15, verse 1. We come back to Judah. This king is called Azariah. And Azariah is also known as Uzziah. Uzziah and Azariah seem to come from the same root word having to do with the strength. And some people see this as a throne name and a personal name, but most likely they're just variants. There's a couple of times in Kings that he's called Uzziah, but most of the time he's called Azariah. But when we get into Chronicles and the book of Isaiah, he's called Uzziah. So for whatever reason, this is one name that the narrator seems to use not interchangeably. A lot of the names that we've seen have just been kind of variants. And there's no rhyme or reason to why the narrator is using one or the other. But in Uzziah's case, Uzziah seems to be a Chronicles prophet use of his name. And Azariah seems to be a Book of Kings use of his name. And they just seem to be variants. That means strength and victory. He was 16 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned for 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehoiaklan, or Jokhaliah who was from Jerusalem. He did what Yahweh approved, just as Father Amaziah had done. But the high places were not eliminated. The people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense in the high places, and Yahweh afflicted the king with illness. He suffered from a skin disease until the day that he died, and he lived in separate quarters while his son Jehotham was in charge of the palace and ruled over the people of the land. So he was godly, but he was inflicted by skin, it was a skin disease by Yahweh. Now, skin diseases are definite judgments from God and certain, for these kind of people. We've seen that with Naaman and Gehaziah. But what's interesting is in the book of Isaiah, we learn why. The book of Isaiah, or Chronicles, I think it was, he unlawfully entered the tabernacle when he was not supposed to. And so because he was unclean as not a priest, entering the tabernacle, God literally made him unclean with a skin disease. So this is judgment. So overall, he was godly, but there were some moments that he had an incredible amount of pride, and he ignored the priest of God and did what he was not supposed to do. The rest of the events of Azariah's reign, including all of his accomplishments, are recorded in the scroll called the Annuals of the Kings of Judah. And Azariah passed away, was buried with his ancestors in the city of David. His son Jotham replaced him as king. We come back to Israel. In verse 8 of chapter 15, In the 38th year of King Azariah's reign over Judah, Jeroboam's son Zechariah became king over Israel. He reigned in Samaria for six months. He did evil in the sight of Yahweh, as his ancestors had done, and he did not repudiate the sinful ways of Jeroboam's son Nebat, encouraged Israel to sin. Shalom, son of Jabesh, conspired against him, and he assassinated him in Ibliam, and he took his place as king. The rest of the events of Zechariah's reign are recorded in the scroll called the Annals of the Kings of Israel. His assassination brought the fulfillment of Yahweh's word to Jehu. Four generations your descendants will rule over Israel, and that is exactly what happened. Now, I love this one, because here's the thing. God promised Jehu that he would have four generations, but he never said how long that fourth generation had to be. So when Zechariah becomes king, he gets six months, and God's like, you're done. Six months and you're done. And he gets assassinated by a different family. Now, Shalom is going to become the assassination. A new family is going to step into power. And what we're going to begin is 
More assassinations! Yay! Just like we had a bunch of kings getting assassinated over and over again with Baasha and Jeroboam and Allah and with Dundun and Zimri. Now we're coming back to that. Another string of them. Now once again, there's not a whole lot of deep application right here. Right now we're just like, my goodness, I feel like a ping ball. Um, ball. I'm just being bounced from Judah to Israel to Judah to Israel. And all these names are going through my head. And I'm probably going to walk away tonight. And I'm not going to remember any of the chronological order of any of these kings. And they're just sinning. There's wars. They're dying. There's skin diseases. There's assassinations and all that kind of stuff. Like, what is the great Sunday school spiritual lesson that I should pull out of my daily bread devotions on this? And it's just, when you don't follow God, your life sucks. (laughs) I mean, really, this is the application. These people are completely disobedient to God. They're living their own life, doing what they want. They're filled with greed, and they're power-hungry. And it's just wars and assassinations. And basically the point that God is making, I think the narrator is intentionally bouncing it back and forth. And I almost wonder if he's intentionally using different variants of their name just to confuse it even more. It almost seems like the narrator is intentionally doing this to you. That there's a literary device of discombobulation happening here. And not only is it politically and historically confusing, but he's adding to the confusion by the way that he's moving back and forth. And I think what he's trying to do is this. God began the Bible by bringing order to the chaos. There was nothing but darkness, disorder, a watery abyss, disorder, and there was nothing. And God brought order. By bringing forming and filling and bringing light to the darkness and structuring everything. And the first thing he showed you is that I'm a God of order. And he blessed it and said it is all good. It's functioning the way it's supposed to, which produces light. And he asked Adam and Eve, he commanded Adam and Eve to continue that order, to be his image and expand the order. That was their goal, to bring Morning to the evening, the light, the order, to the disorder, to the darkness, every single day. So then they sin, and they brought chaos in their life. So what does God do? He decreates Egypt in judgment. He brings the ten plagues. Those plagues uncreate Egypt. All those plagues are the sun going dark, the animals dying, crops dying. It's, it's a decreation of the world. But for Israel, he keeps them protected in the light. And he brings them through the Red Sea. And he uses the Red Sea orderly to save them, but he uses the Red Sea in a chaotic fashion to destroy Egypt. And we see this pattern over and over and over again. When we embrace sin and rebellion, we bring chaos to our life, and God unleashes the chaos as judgment. But when we obey God, then he brings order into our life. And even though today we may have chaos around us circumstantially, we can have order internally with joy, peace, and hope. It is possible to truly live in a chaotic world where everything's falling apart, but be at peace and filled with joy internally because of the one who is greater in you than he is in the world. And so even though we would say, wow, your life looks a mess right now, Internally, I can say, but it's very ordered, and it's very blessed, and I am filled with joy and peace despite that. That's the fruit of the Spirit. And so what God is saying here is that I am giving you over. This is the book of Romans. Because they pursued these things, 
God backed off and said, fine. These hands are the hands that reach into the disordered creation and form and fashion life. The word yasar is a potter's hands on the clay fashioning Adam and Eve. And God fashions order. And when he sees you rebelling, he backs off and throws his hands in the air and says, you're on your own now. And then we create disorder. We bring chaos into our life. I'm really convinced that most of the time God does not have to judge us. We will destroy our own lives left to our own devices. And this is what God is showing. The applicational point is this. This is what your life, your country, your family will be when you pursue your own desires outside of God. And God will throw his hands off and there will be chaos. Now, I'm not saying bad things happening to you is a judgment from God. I'm saying the turmoil, the chaos, the discombobulation, the confusion is a judgment from God. Sometimes bad things happening to us is because we live in a fallen world, but you can still be, still be very stable internally, filled with peace and joy, and see how God is using it to make your character refine like that of gold in the fire. But other times you look at people and they internally are falling apart just as much as the circumstances around them. Now, we all have our moments of depression. We all have our moments of losing it and falling apart. But do you consistently go month after month after month after month, year after year after year, decade after decade like that? The true Christian who's surrendering to God might have brief moments, and they might even struggle with it constantly, but that brings them back to God. Habakkuk is a great example. He's like, God, you are the problem. And all this is happening because you're not doing anything. But he ends the book by saying, yep, but you're good and I'll trust in you. Remember, God never calls us to do this perfectly. But if you never have moments of joy or peace or stability, then one needs to get on their knees and humble themselves before God and ask why. Does that make sense? And the application here is you should Feel the disorientation, the discombobulation, the confusion, and the chaos, because that is the application. That is the judgment. This is what life without God is like. And this is a perfect example of how God doesn't create hell. We create our own hell. And hell is not a place where God sends you to be tormented. Hell is a place where God is not there and we create our own torment. And that's what's happening in the book of Kings. Welcome to hell on earth. And that is the point that God is trying to make here. I am giving you over because of your lack of obedience to me. The question is, can we transfer that to our culture? What was the cure? Chronicles said, if my people humble themselves, and cry out to me, then I will heal my nation. Now, even though we are not the nation of God, we are the people of God. And the same thing applies. And the question is, are we diving into the culture and joining them and looking like them 
and losing our holiness, our uniqueness, our distinction? Are we just complaining about the horrible leaders that we have? Or are we truly humbling ourselves? And remember, Peter says judgment begins in the house of the Lord. It starts with us first. It's very awkward sometimes to be with people who are like, oh, God's going to judge you, God's going to judge you. It's like, ah, it's going to start with you first. It's going to start with me first. And that's the question we need to ask ourselves. Are we humbling and crying out? Or are we just following the culture and just complaining? One of those two things. And this is what God is trying to show us. And they're all reaping this. They're all reaping this. So chapter 15, verse 13. Shalom, son of Jabesh, became king in the 39th year of King Uzziah's reign over Judah. He reigned for one month in Samaria because Menahem, son of Gadi, went up from Tirzah to Samaria and attacked Shalom, son of Jabesh. He killed him and took his place as king. The rest of the events of Shalom's reign, including the conspiracy he organized, are recorded in the scroll called the Annals of the Kings of Israel. At that time, Menahem came from Tirzah and attacked Tibshah, and he struck down all who lived in the city and surrounding territory because they would not surrender. He even ripped open the pregnant women. This is an interesting comment. Because remember, God said, Elijah, Elijah, I want you to go and anoint Hazel, Haziel as king of Aram. Haziel was a pagan, jacked-up, evil king. He is not from the people of God. And so then when Elisha went and actually did it, he had a vision of Haziel ripping open pregnant women. And it emphasizes here the pagan nature of his mentality. That you have to be so godless to be willing to actually do that to people. Now that's important because in a way, not only does it set up how God is using the enemy to attack Israel, but it sets you up for the king of Israel who does the exact same thing. And what God is doing is he's saying that I am putting my chosen king, the person who is a descendant of Abraham, the person who's supposed to be the image of God, the person who's supposed to be leading Israel in righteousness, and he's acting just like a horrible pagan despot king of the north. There is no difference between the two of them. And one of the first things that God called Israel to be in Exodus chapter 19, verses 3 through 6, is you will be my holy nation. And remember, holy means unique and unlike anything in creation. And only God is unique and unlike anything in creation. But we become holy when we allow ourselves to be used by God in a unique way that our life is used in a way that nobody else's life is because it's being used by God. And he is so far from that now. And this is why later we're going to be told that the Israelites became worse than the Canaanites. And I don't even know how that's possible. I mean, when we did Joshua, I took you through their horrible sins. And it's like, what in the world is possibly worse than that? But there is that. It's Israel. 